Years ago, <clears throat> I visited Thailand, and uh, I was in the area around Bangkok. And anybody ever been to Bangkok, Thailand? Any of that? Okay, all they have. Well, one of the things that fascinated me on my on my trip there was in front of every house, there was a little a little wooden house up on a on a pole, almost like. Like back east, you might find a bird feeder out in front of somebody's house. You know, a little wooden house that looks like a bird feeder. Well, in Thailand, it kind of looked like that. It had a you know a little wooden roof and had four sides to it and a little door and a little little ledge in the front. And always there was food out on the ledge. And the guide that I was with, uh, the person that was taking us on this little tour, I pointed out these little wooden houses and I said, "So, so what's the deal?" And they said, well, that's the family's idol. They make a home for the family idol. I'm like, oh, okay. So what's with the food outside? Well, they want the idol to be well-fed, well-taken care of. So everyone has their own family idol in their little wooden house out in front of their house. And they maintain uh, keeping, you know, plenty of food out there for the idol. Well, of course, being in a, you know, a... a silly American that that struck me as funny until sometime later when I was studying some scripture some of which has to do with our passage today about idols and I got to thinking about how we don't have little houses out in front of our house we don't build a little structure and we don't put a muffin out there for our idols but we have idols you know, in verse number 8 of chapter 4 of Galatians, the Bible says, Formerly, when you did not know God, you were enslaved to those that by nature are not gods. But now that you've come to know God, or rather to be known by God, how can you turn back again to the weak and worthless elementary principles of the world whose slaves you want to be once more? You know, Paul's asking the critical question, what, it, what is earthly in you? Why, why would you want to turn back? Why would you want to, to offer time and attention, maybe not a muffin, but, but focus and, um, again, attention to, a, to an earthly idol? So let's talk a minute. What are, what are some idols right here in South Orange County? Where's, where's an idol or two? Cars. Cars. Sure. Cars. We we choose cars as as something that we put on a on a pedestal and we evaluate. We care for them as if they were animate objects. Sometimes you know, um, spending ridiculous amounts of money on a on an automobile. Sure, car. What else? Kids. Kids. Woo! Now you went to meddling. <laughs> Who said that? Was that Celine? Tell me, tell me why you said that, Celine. Explain. Um, well, we we uh, are revolving around what their needs are all the time, and they're always. What are, what are, where are we going to go to make the kids happy? What, are, what do they need? It's always about the kids, and I'm guilty, but I try to put it knowing that. You guys agree with her that children become idols? No. I really, really, really do. Um, and in our culture especially, um, somehow the self-esteem that, that we lack 
uh, we project that onto our children, and, and it's as if we put them in a little house on, out in the front of our house. Um, we, we put them on a pedestal, and as you said, the, the world revolves around them. What's, what's more idols? Houses. Sure. House itself. You know, um, if we lived in uh, other parts of the world, having a roof over our head would be considered uh, amazing. Um, and yet, you know, if ours isn't quite the latest and greatest, or, you know, you used to hear me, uh, one of my funniest stories was I thought that I would have arrived if I ever got an island in my home. <laughs> and I remember the house, uh, two houses ago, we got this little island. It was about four foot by four foot. But I thought I had arrived. I had finally gotten my, my whatever because I have an island in my kitchen. Um, you know, uh, strange and weird things that we, we project that become idols. Or maybe it's, uh, you know, countertops, a certain kind of countertops or... Yeah, I remember a few years back, maybe about 10 years ago, it was window treatments. Everything was window treatments. And I, I was nagging about window treatments for months. Do you remember that? I remember. <laughs> it just, it was everywhere you went, the women, everybody was talking about their window treatments. It was like, what? I mean, you know, you got a window, you got a shade, it opens, it closes, it's got curtains, I, I, you know. And then I got planter, uh, what do you call those things? Yeah, yeah, plantation shutters. You know, I've arrived now. I've got an island and plantation shutters. I mean, what more could a girl want in life? What else? What else do we make idols? Yeah. One day I said, I really like elephants. And from that day on, you should see my house. It's <laughs> elephants I love every one of them. Mrs. Graham's is one of the worst, but that's, I love her anyway. But I have, they're not my idols. But when you walk in my house... Sure looks like it. <laughs> Who is this woman? And what does she <laughs> How about... Um, jobs. Jobs? Corporate ladder. Our bodies. bodies are a real big thing right now. If it ain't window treatments, now it's, it's, it's our bodies. You know, who's spending more time in which gym doing what thing? You know, and 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 I I would be the worst to make fun of that for heaven's sakes. But anything the Bible says that an idol is anything or anybody that gets what God alone deserves. We can't worship our bodies. We should take care of it. There should be a good stewardship. Those of us that are like me on the, on the, on the deficit end of that should, should do a better job. Maybe some of you should do a little less good job of it. But, you know, anything or anybody that gives what God deserves. If, if the house or a countertop or window treatments or our children or a car or a position or where we live or, or any number of other things... If they get the attention that God and God alone deserves, they're an idol. Um, it, it doesn't have to be something bad. It's just something that has, that has misshapen, that has become misshapen, and it's taken a place in our lives that it shouldn't have. And that's an idol. And, and Paul's starting this section, chapter 4, verses 8 through 20, by, by talking about being slaves to, to those who are not gods, to, to putting ourselves in a position where our time and attention is on something other than God himself. 
Uh, A.W. Tozer wrote a, a, a quote, I put it in your notes today. It says, grace will save a man, but it will not save him and his idol. God, God is not, not pleased when we allow anyone or anything to slide into the place that rightfully belongs to him. And, and we have to kind of weed whack those things on a regular basis. Um, you know, Sue's talking about her, her kids. All right, great. So during a season, you, you whack them back down to a reasonable size. Yes, our kids are, are privileged. They are. They, they live in a culture where they are privileged. We can't suddenly deprive them of food and, 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 and think that's a good thing or not let them have a, a pair of shoes or not let them play baseball when baseball is a passion. I don't think that's the reaction that we ought to have. But the reaction might be not every night, not everything in the home, not, not a new pair of shoes every other month. You know, you could wear the old ones even though they're not the latest and the greatest. Hacking down those things that become idol, or become a, a form of idolatry in our life is part of this process. What he's focused on in Galatians is don't turn back. Don't go back the way you used to be. And he starts this discussion in chapter 4, verse 8 by saying, hey, let's, let's take a look at, at, at those that are slaves, the things that are not God's. And then he says in verse number 9, you're turning again to weak. And depending on what translation you have, you might see the word poor or, or feeble. And then, he, and then he uses the word worthless or bankrupt or beggarly world system. You've gone back to something that doesn't hold up. Something that doesn't, doesn't sustain you. And, and in particular, what he's referring to is in verse number 10. He says, you, you crazy Galatians, what you've done is you've gone back to observing days and months and seasons and years. Now, in our culture, that means almost nothing. I mean, we have a calendar. It starts in January. It runs to December 31st. Okay. It has holidays in it. Yes, we pay attention to that. School starts in September. We're out 11 or 12 weeks in the summer. There is a pattern or rhythm to our calendar. But it, the calendar isn't, isn't a, a focus of our worship. But in their time, the calendar really mattered. Now, on your notes, you should have, uh, and towards the back, a listing of, of Jewish calendar days. So keep going towards the back. I put two handouts in there. One of them is the Jewish calendar. And you say, well, what's the big deal, Siri? Well, the big deal is these Galatians, instead of putting their time and attention and focus on their relationship with Jesus, they were sliding back into the pattern of keeping the feast and the festivals associated with the Jewish calendar. So, for example, if you looked at this calendar, it looks like Greek to us. It's actually Hebrew, but it looks like Greek. <laughs> but go to the farthest right-hand column where it says month of the sacred year. You see that over on the far right? And then about halfway down, it says first. You right with me? All right, now, if you move back over to the first column, you'll find out that the first month in the Jewish calendar was Nisan. N-I-S-A-N, you see it? Okay, and then the next one is Yar and Sivan and Tammuz and Ab and Elu and whatever. There were two different calendars. One was a sacred calendar, having to do with these feasts and festivals. And the other one was the civil calendar. So the civil calendar started with Tishri, which would have been our September or October. You with me? Mm -hmm. And then the, the, the sacred calendar or the feast and festivals would have started in March and April. Now, they were an agrarian society, so they're growing crops, right? 
So at the beginning of the, of the season of growing crops, that's the start of their, of their festivals, their feasts. That's why the Passover is in Nisan. And then, and then so on. I, I don't care that you know that, except I've got to spend a little bit of time on each one of the, the festivals. The point that Paul's making is you've, you've turned back. Instead of, of having a continual flow to the worship that when you get together and, and someone is preaching out of one of the letters that Paul or others have written and the worship and the understanding of who Jesus is and what he did on the cross and all that freshness to that first century church, you've fallen back and said, well, wait a minute, let's look at the calendar. Let's look at the feast days. Let's look at the festivals. Let's, let's start working on those. Let's make sure we keep those crisp and clean and, 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 and you know, as a, as a key part of our worship. And, and what, what Paul's trying to say is, wait a minute, you're turning back. You're going backwards. You're going back into a traditional uh, uh, set, structured to life when Christ has given you a new a horizon, a new way of looking at life, a new covenant, not, not rooted in keeping the festivals and the sacrifices associated with the calendar. He said, you're, you're, you're turning back as evidenced by your observing the days and the months and the times and the years. So I, I wanted to take just a minute while we're in this section to talk about those feasts and festivals because modern Christendom doesn't spend very much time talking about this. So again, there's a second little chart in there with the Jewish feasts and festivals. Now there were, there were seven feasts. Go to the book of Leviticus, chapter 23. Leviticus, chapter 23. Old Testament, not a passage I'm sure you're camping in very often, but nonetheless, worthy of making a note. Leviticus 23. So we're in the middle of a section where God's giving uh, the children of Israel all the details of the law, including the ceremonial part. The ceremonial part, including all the keeping of the feasts and festivals. And in, in Leviticus 23, he starts outlining all of these feasts and festivals. And there are seven of them. Um, and, and I suppose you would include the Sabbath as an eighth one. So you can see in verse 23, or chapter 23, verse 1, the Lord spoke to Moses saying, Speak to the people of Israel, say to them, These are the appointed feasts of the Lord that you should proclaim as holy convocations. They are my appointed feasts. They were divinely appointed times. Each one of these feasts recognized some specific aspect of God's saving grace. And so when they participated in that feast or festival, they were saying, by extension, yep, we get it. This is God. This is how he does it. And we're participating with him. We're showing our allegiance to him. And he starts off in verse 3 by talking about the Sabbath. Six days shall work be done. On the seventh day is a Sabbath of solemn rest, uh, a holy convocation. You shall do no work. It is a Sabbath to the Lord in all your dwelling places. Now, the word Sabbath just means rest. And, and uh, I'm going to talk about that in, in just a little bit more detail in a moment. Look at verse 4, though. He starts with the first feast, which is the Passover. So in verse number 5, he says, On the first month, on the 14th day of the month, at twilight, is the Lord's Passover. And so if you were looking at their calendar and you saw that it was time for there to be the feast or the festival of, of 
of Passover. It would be in March or April. It would be on the 14th day. And yes, it was, it was to be commemorating the fact that God led the, the children of Israel out of Egypt and he passed over, the death angel passed over those that had the blood on the, on the doorpost. Do you remember the story? Okay, so, so when they commemorated that at the beginning of the spring season, they were, they were entering into the understanding that God had done that for them. He had passed over because they by faith put blood on the, on the, on the doorpost and the sides. And when the death angel went through the camp, he spared those where the blood was 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 visible. We have a, an old hymn, when I see the blood, I will pass, I will pass over you. You remember that old hymn? Uh, it's a great old hymn, and, and the, the essence of it is, God saw the blood and passed by. Well, in our case, New Testament, God saw the blood of his son, and therefore passed over, and did not hold me accountable. I, I would celebrate the Passover in the same spirit, even though the Jewish people would have been thinking about what happened as they were leaving Egypt. You and I might be thinking about what Christ did for us on the cross. And we would celebrate Passover. Right on the heels of that would come the Feast of Unleavened Bread. Now, unleavened bread, they were to travel, and, and the leaven would have made the bread go bad more quickly. So they were specified uh, in verses 6 and 8 of that same chapter in Leviticus to, to celebrate the Feast of the Unleavened Bread, remembering that they, when they scattered out of Egypt, they gathered their materials and, in fact, did not put uh, leaven in their bread so it would last longer and they would be able to, to celebrate God's faithfulness in bringing them out. Then still in the springtime, the next one would be the, the Feast of, of uh, First Fruits. And, and, and that one was held not very long after the Unleavened Bread, and acknowledge that God was giving them a bounty. There was the first fruits, the first results of their, of, their, um, of their agricultural way of life. Then that would lead to the Feast of Pentecost. Pentecost had three different names, the Feast of Weeks, because it was celebrated for a whole week, or the Feast of the Harvest. And again in Leviticus 23, verses 15 to 21, now they're going to celebrate the actual harvest, that the grain has come, and, and it was seven weeks after the Passover. So... Starting in the spring, starting in the time of, of March and April, over a, a, a seven, eight week period of time, they would have celebrated the Passover, the unleavened bread, the first fruits, and Pentecost. Now, for a Jewish person, celebrating those feast days was a way of entering in to what God had done in the past and their recognition that He was still active in their life. For a believer, looking at the feast and festivals is rich. Christians don't do this. In fact, I want to write a book for kids on the Feast of Festivals. I, 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 think, I think children would really get into the, to the, to the, the spirit of what was behind the Feast and the Festivals, particularly the one of the tabernacles, and I'll get to that one in a minute. Why don't we? Well, because we say we're New Covenant. We don't have to. We've already talked about it. The law is not held to us. We do not. He doesn't want us to. That's Paul's big thing to the Galatians. You are not under the constraints of the law. But how rich understanding those feasts and festivals is. So a little bit of study on your part wouldn't, wouldn't hurt you to, to, to enter into what they were celebrating. Now, when the spring was over, the, the, there was a, a long gap between the festivals. And, and after the, the gap, they would have the Feast of the Trumpets. That would be marking the new agricultural year or the, or the fall harvest now. 
and it helped them anticipate what God was going to do in this new season. So the, the spring harvest was behind them, and now they're moving into the, into the fall. The highest and most special day of all the feast days is the Day of Atonement. And, and this, is the, this is the day that, that is so important to, uh, to, to Jewish people, of course, even till this day, but very, very important to us. What happened on the Day of Atonement? Well, on the Day of Atonement, there were 15 different sacrifices offered, all kinds of uh, offerings, wave offerings, burnt offerings, uh, sacrificial offerings of all kinds. And at, and at one point, the high priest would go into the Holy of Holies. So if you're not real familiar with that, you could look at a, a picture of a, the tabernacle or the temple itself, and it had, it had rooms, uh, we'll call them rooms, the outer room where all the priests could go, and the inner room where only the high priest could go. That would call, be called the Holy of Holies. And the high priest only went in the Holy of Holies once, once a year, and he sprinkled blood on the mercy seat of the Ark of the Covenant. Now remember, we've talked about how he had a, he had a robe on, and the robe had bells. What were the bells for? Because if he cro- flops over and dies, the bells will ring and you know it, and you can pull him out. If God didn't accept the offering, um, when, when the high priest would go in and he would offer that uh, blood on the mercy seat, he was, he was picturing, picturing the coming Messiah that was going to shed his blood for us. This stuff is so rich with imagery, it's not funny. The Jewish calendar is just, um, it, it screams uh, imagery of, of the New Testament of what Christ has done for us. The second really important part of the Day of Atonement was, was the scapegoat. So they would take a goat, a perfect goat, and they would take it down to the edge of the, of the community of the Jewish, uh, as they were traveling uh, through the, towards the Promised Land, and they would take that perfect goat and set him loose. And, and, and before they would set him loose, the high priest would put his hands on that scapegoat and ceremonially putting all of the sin on that, on that scapegoat. And then that goat was turned loose. If the goat made its way back to camp, then, then the, they were still responsible for their sin. But if the scapegoat went and never returned, then he took, him, took with him the sins of, of the people. Well, what do, what do we have in that picture in our lives? We understand so clearly that our sin and your sin was placed on Christ. And Christ became our scapegoat. <coughs> Uh, it was placed on him, he suffered, he, he, he died, he went in our place, and God accepted and no longer held me accountable for my sin, but the scapegoat had it placed on him. So that high day of atonement was a, was a critical day, an important day in the Jewish calendar. Look at Romans chapter 3 just for a moment. Romans chapter 3, we're in Galatians, or now you're in Leviticus, but go to Romans 3. Sorry. Making you look in your Bible today. That's what Bible is for. Romans 3. Starting down in verse number 24. Well, it starts with 23. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And are justified by his grace as a gift. Through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Whom God put forward as a propitiation. A covering by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance he had passed over former sins. God 
looking over them. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. A picture of what was happening and celebrated on the Day of Atonement. Go to the book of Hebrews. Hebrews picks this theme up and just carries it several, several different times. Go to chapter 9, Hebrews chapter 9. Hebrews chapter 9, verse number 7. He says, uh, let me start in verse 6. These preparations having thus been made, the priests go regularly into the first section, performing their ritual duties. But into the second, only the high priest goes, and he but once a year, and not without taking blood, which he offers for himself and for the unintentional sins of the people. Look at, um, drop down to chapter 10, verse number 3. 10.3 says, But in these sacrifices there is a remainder of sins every year, for it's impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away our sins. Consequently, when Christ came into the world, he said, Sacrifices and offerings you have not deserved, but a body you have prepared for me. In burnt offerings and sin offerings you have taken no pleasure. Then I said, Behold, I have come to do your will, O God, as is written of me in the scroll of the book. God taking our place. Drop down to verse 19 of that same chapter. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his faith. Look, everything that was done on the Day of Atonement is rich with pictures and imagery and foretelling and shadows of what was coming when Jesus died on the cross for us. Why wouldn't we spend a little time thinking about that? And then on the heels of the Day of Atonement was the the Feast of the Tabernacles, or also known as the Feast of the Ingathering. So this is is a feast commemorating the period of the the wilderness wandering that they they went through and and eventually ended up uh, coming into the Promised Land. Jesus himself uh, he, he celebrates the Feast of the Tabernacles in John 7. It specifically says he's in, he's in Jerusalem and he's, he's, he's participating in the, in the keeping of the Feast of the Tabernacles. The Feast of the Tabernacles, by the way, they would, they would build a little hut or a little tent outside their house. And instead of living in the house during the time of the, of the festival, they'd live in that little tent, commemorating the fact of, of their wandering. Now, there's not a child alive that wouldn't enjoy pitching a tent in the backyard and celebrating the Feast of the Tabernacles, correct? So this is rich. Now, I understand what Paul's saying to us in this passage in Galatians is, why are you going back to keeping this law, uh, keeping this pattern, keeping these, these days and these weeks and, 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 and offering them as if they were the end all? I'm not suggesting that, but I am suggesting as a New Testament believer, having some understanding of them would enrich our walk. We don't keep the calendar. We don't do these feast days for the same reasons that they did. They were looking forward to the fact that it would be fulfilled. You and I know it's been fulfilled. We can fill in all the blanks. We can go dot to dot to dot and become so, so tasty in, in our understanding. Now he says, he talks about um, the feast and festivals, and he mentions the Sabbath day. The Sabbath occurred every week, okay, so we know uh, in our calendar it would be Saturday. But they also had monthly Sabbaths, and every seven years they had a Sabbath, and every 50th year they had what they call the year of Jubilee. 
So Sabbath was a really big deal. And of the Ten Commandments, keep holy the Sabbath is the only one that is not repeated in the New Testament. So all of the rest of the Ten Commandments, don't murder, don't kill, don't this, don't do that, Jesus repeats them all except for the Sabbath. So arguments could be made, should we, shouldn't we, is it important? (coughs) And there's a great book uh, called The City of God by uh, John Mark Comer, C-O-M-E-R, that that purports for keeping the Sabbath, and it's worthy of your reading. Now, staying with Leviticus 23 for a minute, because Paul's referring to it, they also had something called pilgrimages. So three of those feast days, every Jewish man had to leave his home and go up to Jerusalem to actually celebrate. The Feast of the Unleavened Bread, the Feast of Pentecost, and the Feast of Tabernacles. Those three, all Jewish men, had to go up to Jerusalem. They were, they were not allowed to celebrate the, in, in their local community. They had to make a, an actual pilgrimage, according to Deuteronomy 16, up to Jerusalem for those three feast days. Now, still trying to fill in what's the feast days, let me, let me tell you a little bit more. During the time period after the exile, so put your thinking cap on now and a little history of Jerusalem, or history of Israel, so at, at some point, the, the Assyrians came in and attacked the northern part of Israel, and later the Babylonians ended up taking the whole, the whole lot. And when they did, they took, they took exiles into Babylon. That was when Daniel ended up over in Babylon. Everybody with me on that? So during the Babylonian uh, exile, did they, did they have feasts and festivals? Answer, yes. And they added two different ones. So the two that were added, one of them comes right out of the book of Esther. Does anybody remember what it was called? Puro, P-U-R-I-M. And it was just a celebration or the feast of the lots, the lots that were cast and, and God's people were saved by those lots. So they added that feast to their, to their repertoire. And then a little bit later on, about 160 some odd years before Christ, there was, there was a period in Jewish history where they were overrun, and the Maccabees uh, held, held out. They were the, they were the true uh, Jewish fighters. And the Maccabees, uh, during that period, restored the temple. And there is a story, it's a historical story, that they went to light the, the menorahs, the candles that were in the temple, but they had only enough oil for one day. But miraculously, the candles stayed lit eight days. And so what do they call that festival? Hanukkah, or the festival of lights, or the festival of dedication. So a a Jewish person today is going to have the seven feasts that you'll find in Leviticus 23. They will add Purim out of the book of of Esther, and then out of uh, Israel's history, they'll they'll pull in the, the feast of the dedications. Now, what did the early church do? So so I already told you that Jesus kept the feasts and the festivals. Um, specifically, the one that you can find so easy is in John 7, where he's, he's up in, in uh, Israel or in uh, Jerusalem for the Feast of the Tabernacles. Well, they, they, they practiced a lot of them. Christ was actually crucified on the Passover. So on the Passover, according to Matthew 26, Mark 14, John 18, he is called the Passover lamb in 1 Corinthians 5. And then, when did the Holy Spirit descend upon the early church? In Acts chapter 2, it came on the day of Pentecost. 
So they, the early church was immersed in still maintaining an, an awareness of and a celebration of those festivals and, and feast days. Our Bible uh, has a lot of references to these feast days. The book of Psalms was integral in quite a few of these feasts and festivals. Psalm 114 was a text for, for the Passover. And then I, I listed Psalm 50, 65, 67, and 76 were all related to the Feast of Tabernacles. I'm telling you all this to say there's something to the festivals. There's something to the feast days. Not to keep them as if that was somehow enriching our personal walk with Christ, but to, to, to fill in the, the coloring of it, to let us see the backdrop of it. See, Christ didn't come and stand alone without, without a whole backdrop of the Old Testament. We don't rip the Old Testament out of our Bibles and throw it away and start with the book of Matthew. We, we see Christ in the context of God's relationship with his people. And the feasts and festivals are a key part of that. And in fact, many scholars see the festivals as prophetic. And I put them in your notes. We don't have time to make a big case about this. But I, I just want to read this to you so you can get a sense of it. So regarding those, those early spring feasts, the Passover was reflecting the death of Christ. And then the Feast of the Unleavened Bread, speaking of his burial, because during the Passover, there was a custom of burying or hiding a piece of the bread and then resurrecting it at a, at a key moment during the festival, suggesting how Christ was hidden in the ground. Then the first fruits symbolizing the resurrection itself, that, that, that out of the ground there was going to be a resurrection. Then the, the, the Feast of, of Pentecost, denoting the birth of the church 50 days after he rose from the dead. That's pretty prophetic. That that lines itself up in a, in a very interesting way. Now, slipping to the fall feast, there's a lot of time between the spring feast and the fall feast. And prophetically speaking, that would be the church age, the time between the time Christ came and, 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 and offered himself as a sacrifice and the time when he comes and stomps his foot on the Mount of Olives as the Lord of Lords. That, that age, that period, that historical time period is the church age, and that might be considered the span of time between the two sets of festivals. So the Feast of Trumpets announces the fall festivals. What, what does First, uh, first uh, Thessalonians 4 say? The Lord himself shall descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the angel, with the uh, sound of trumpets. And, and, and he goes on to talk about uh, the return of the Lord. So, Feast of Trumpets announcing his return. The Day of, to uh, of Atonement, suggesting the start of the Great Tribulation. And then the Feast of the Tabernacles, reflecting the second coming of our Lord, ushering in what will be known as the Millennial Kingdom for Israel. Now, all that to say this. Those Jewish people in Galatia, instead of focusing on Christ and what he had done, they were sliding. They were just sliding back into a pattern. He says, well, we do. We keep the feast days. We keep the festivals. And, and Paul's coming along going, no, guys, no turning back. Once you've put your faith in Christ, we move forward. We don't slide backwards. But I'm suggesting to you that Christians are, not, are certainly not required, but knowing about these feasts and festivals can enhance our walk. 
And since Jesus himself maintained every one of them, participated in them, why wouldn't we know something about them? So spend a little time. Now let's go back to Galatians 4. That was all a little side note. Did you like that? Look at verse 13. He says, uh, verse 12, I entreat you, become as I am, for I have become as you are. You did me no wrong. You know it. It was because of a bodily ailment that I preached the gospel to you at first. Now Paul's saying, hey, I've I've got a problem. I've got a physical issue. Scholars have argued for centuries about what this physical issue was. Um, Many have suggested it was some sort of a fever, malaria, Malta fever, even epilepsy at one point. But most scholars have settled on some form of eye disease. Um, And he refers to this as his thorn in the flesh in 2 Corinthians. Now, the reason I think it has to do with his eyes is, is having to do with a couple of different things. One... He used secretaries. The Bible calls them amanuenses. An amanuensis took down what you said. He sat next to you, you talked, he wrote it down. Um, Paul used them. You can look at that in Romans 16, 22, even names one that was his secretary. But notice in chapter 6 here in Galatians, 6.11, he makes a side comment. You see his side comment in 6.11? See with what large letters I am writing to you with my own hand. So for some reason, when writing to the Galatians, he picked up the pen himself, did not have his secretary, his amanuensis, doing the writing, and he says, I'm writing it in large letters. Now, why large letters? Because I think the guy needed glasses. I think there was something wrong with his eyes. I I can't prove it, but I think that's what he's referring to. So our passage, chapter 4, verse 8 to 20, it has this, this injunction to not turn around and go back to, to putting their faith and their trust and their confidence in all these feasts and festivals. And he refers to them, hey, listen, I, I suffered for you. You should be listening to me. There was a time and a place when you paid attention to what I said. He is, his great concern is that these children, these these children in the faith grow in Christ, that they don't stay the way they are. Look, here's a challenge, and I gave myself this yesterday. I asked myself this question. Where in my 50 years of walking with the Lord was I feeling and, and sensing and, 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 and believing that I was as close to the Lord as, as humanly possible? Where was that apex, that point? where it was just, I trusted, I had confidence, my walk was, was uh, as, as sinless as Sherry Wall could ever get it. Uh, and, and where was that moment? Where was that time period, that season of life, when I was closer to the Lord than any other time period? And I answered that for myself. Now you think about it for a minute. And if that period of time is not now, then we've slid. Maybe just a little. Maybe more than a little. And that's Paul's point. He doesn't want them to get sidetracked with all the other stuff. And heaven knows in a modern context, there is so much stuff for you and I to get sidetracked. There's relationships. There's media. There's the demands. There's children. There's work. There's a home to run. You know, there's, 
There's activities that are overwhelming us. Paul's saying, I, I had a wonderful personal relationship with you, but, but somehow something's got in there and you slid a little. You, you've allowed something to get between you and me, and, and more importantly, you've allowed, you've allowed some stuff to get between you and the Lord. And, and, I, and I don't want that. And I, and I got to thinking about how that happens. Usually it happens because somebody or something suggests that there's something wrong with maybe our church or our pastor or our Bible study leader or a mentor that, that's been key in our lives. And we start doing the, well, you know, there might be a better, I don't know, there a, the music, it's not that great at my church. My Bible study leader was gone last week. She wasn't here. <laughs> uh, you know, there's a little slide here, a little, you with me? Just a little criticism of somebody, a little criticism of the work. Well, I remember when Saddleback was, you know, was preaching the gospel, and now all we need is a phrase. You remember when our church used to, but now, you know, I remember when we, Sonovic used to be very, right? All it takes is a little bit, a little bit of, a little bit of discord, a little bit of a phrase, a little bit of evaluation. What Paul's saying is, wait a minute. This is not what we want to do. We don't want to start nitpicking our church. We don't want to start nitpicking our pastors. We don't want to start nitpicking our Bible teachers or our mentors or our best friends. They're all flawed anyway. Who cares? Right? If your focus is on a person, you're in trouble already. And instead, let's not get sidetracked. Let's have that sweet fellowship, that zealous. In fact, he gets to that word zealous towards the end of this passage. Look at verse 18. It is always good to be made much of for a good purpose. And not only when I am present with you, my little children, for when I am again in the anguish of childbirth until Christ is formed in you, I wish to, to be uh, present with you now and change my tone, for I'm, I'm perplexed about you. He says, look, I, I get it. I understand. I, I want you to have all this focus, you know, this boldness, this, this zealousness. But make sure that your zeal rests in truth and, and that you're, you're focused on, on the right kinds of things. I, I, I think that in our walk, if we've known the Lord longer than six months or so, there is an ebb and flow to our walk because it's impossible for a fallen person to maintain a, a, an intense focus always. But, but what is possible is to renew, to renew. His mercies are new every morning. Why does that verse re resound with us so much? Because there's a pattern to it. That sun came up this morning, and when the same <coughs> sun came up, so did his mercies. So all we have to do is go to the Lord and say, all right, I, I didn't do as great yesterday as I could have or should have. My attitude stunk. My my relationship with the Lord wasn't what it should be. My, my patience with my children, my, my focus on your word, my, my focus on godly behavior was, was slipping. I, and, I, and I'm changing it. Today I'm, I'm, I'm getting another run at it. 
And, and every day his mercies are new to equip us to do it. Again, it's not like this. Our, our walk doesn't go like this. Our walk goes, you know, I'll speak for myself. My walk goes like this. But the idea is ever upward, ever upward. Taking the time to not get sidetracked. So if you find yourself this week a little sidetracked, probably not in feasts and festivals and Jewish calendars, uh. but sidetracked with kids, or sidetracked with husbands, or sidetracked over a, a dumb house or a stupid car or a possession, <laughs> or anything else, <clears throat> or anything else. The holidays are coming up and you're wigging out over the dumb holidays. <laughs> maybe maybe it's, the time, it's the time to sit down with the Lord and say, give me three things to focus on for the next eight weeks, and only three things. And those three things have nothing to do with the nonsense that the world's talking about. Let your focus be on, on a relationship with the Lord so that we don't make U-turns, even little ones. Let's pray. Lord, Galatians is a repeat over and over and over and over again of the same message. Don't get sidetracked. Don't U-turn. Today he says to not get you turned on the feast and the festivals, but we do uh, a, a really good job of getting sidetracked with, with schedules and things that we think are important when in truth they're not. Help us to center in on what is important, and that's people. Father, give us a heart for the people around us, especially during the holidays. Don't allow us to slide back, Father. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.